This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story, now part of the Marketing Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm very excited to introduce you to Nathaniel Garrett Novacell. Nate is a professional researcher and advisor with over 20 years of experience studying individual and group behavior. And over that time, he has researched psychology, evolutionary biology, organizational best practices, leadership decision making business, technology, finance, and philosophy to understand how the world as we know it works and why. He spent much of his career using the insights from his research to help the world's leading executives solve their most pressing organizational challenges and create their strategic plans. Noticing the common drive drivers of success in all areas, he decided to devote his research, problem solving, and advisory skills to helping people live the best lives possible. He joins me today to talk about his career and his new book, The Meaning of Life, A Guide to Finding Your Life's Purpose. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Nathaniel. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there is uh, so much to unpack just in that introduction, but uh, I always start um, from the very beginning uh, by asking this question, which is, uh, Nate, where does your story begin? I mean, probably the best uh, place to start is um, when I was around uh, five. Uh, now, I don't have memories from that time, but uh, one of the most significant events in my life was my uh, father disappeared in the middle of the night when I was five. Um, and uh, it was just my my mother and my brother uh, growing up from then. Um, and we didn't by, by disappear, you don't mean like he just like dematerialized, like he, he, he left. He left. <laughs> he left in the middle of the night. Uh, and so uh, we heard from him six months later and uh, he wanted to see us. So we went out, it turned out, I, so I'm from Pittsburgh originally, he moved uh, to California. Um, so we went out, out there to see him for three weeks and two days when I was six. And I do remember that because I had four <laughs> memories by that point. Uh, but uh, I will tell you, I don't remember how I felt when he disappeared. Uh, I don't really remember much, but like I do remember when I went to see him, 
uh, on the flight there, I cried and cried because it the first time had been the first time I'd ever uh, been away from my mother before. But then I wasn't ready. That was just kind of crying because I wasn't going to see her for a few weeks. Um, when I left my father and came back home, I was okay until nighttime came and I was by myself and just kind of sitting there staring at the ceiling. I just cried and cried and cried. I, I felt like someone ripped my heart out of my chest. And like I and it was the first time I, I you know, looked up and said, what is the point of all this if we're just going to suffer like this? This sucks. Uh, and then that's when the question in my head came up. What is the meaning of life? You know, it's what most people have some sort of suffering story where they ask what the meaning of life is. Uh, but there's one little catch of the story. I didn't know till decades later, but I, I, I'm like really, really high on the autism spectrum, like really high. So like I always joke, uh, um, uh, high enough where no one knows I have it. And so therefore everyone just thinks I'm a jerk because <laughs> I just like do some socially weird things. Um, but, um, there's a part of my brain that is very stoic and like Vulcan, like, and so it was like, I'm crying my eyes out and I'm six and back. My brain's like, that's a fascinating question. I wonder if you can answer what's the meaning of life. I wonder what the answer to that is. So my brain started working on that. Um, so, uh, between my social awkwardness, which I didn't know at the time, but was Asperger's and, uh, this question I had, I studied psychology, philosophy, religion, all these things for the next, you know, 20 odd years. And what happened was um, when I was around, I think I was 29 or something, um, I had asked myself um, what I was going to say. I was transitioning jobs. So I worked uh, for the previous, I think, seven or eight years um, as um, a researcher and advisor uh, for the world's uh, leading organizations and, and their executives. Um, so I help executives make critical decisions and stuff through you know, research on what the best organizations do. And so um, I was leaving from one company to another research firm. And I said, oh, well, you know, usually people say something nice, uh, some sort of like inspirational speech. What would I say? Well, I didn't actually say this speech, but I kept thinking about it. And I was like, uh, you know, what is the key to success? And I was like, well, you need desire and belief and da 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 da. And it's like, yeah, but what's the point? And that kind of like that kind of, uh, you know, question kind of was underlying there. I didn't really, I don't think I consciously was aware of it. But I was like, well, what's the point of all? And I was like, well, you know, the, the point is growth. And I was like, Wait a second. So I started, I was like, well, yeah, so these are, the, you have to understand, you know, create growth, desire, belief. And I started writing down this list of these core ideas or concepts of life that you have to understand and master so that you can find meaning and purpose in it. And I was like, oh my God, I got to write this down. This is crazy. Because uh, I was asking myself what I had learned over those decades of doing studying. How could I break it all down to something simple? And the other thing I realized was that um, I didn't like how most like philosophy, religious, uh, even psychology tests, texts kind of worked in the sense that most like philosophy or kind of religious kind of things were all kind of combining things like what the goal of life is and what your ethics should be, how you should live, all that stuff. And those aren't all the same thing, but they kind of treat them as a package. So like if you believe that, you know, God exists, then therefore you should like follow these rules. And it's like, wait a second, <laughs> it's like those aren't necessarily you know, exactly the same thing. Um, and then the psychology would like kind of stay kind of far away. It's like, here's how human behavior works, but we're not going to draw any conclusions about like, you know, how to do whatever. So I was like, well, what if I took a, what if I wrote a book that took all the scientific knowledge that I've learned about how human behavior works? And then I combined it with a little bit of like, what could you draw philosophically about how to find meaning and purpose in your life and i put those together as like a scientific approach to um, how to find more meaning and purpose in your life and that's what ended up becoming the book uh the meaning of life uh, a guide to finding your life's purpose 
Now, and you know, just going back to that time when you were six, um, cause that's a sure. really big question for a six year old to have, you know, what is, what is my purpose? I think when I was at, when mm-hmm. I was six, I was, you know, wondering, you know, what happened on GI Joe when I was watching at the time <laughs> and why are people never getting shot when all these lasers are going back and forth? But, um, <laughs> You know, like, but but from a young age, I mean, this this is a question that you were kind of in tune in tune with. Um, mm-hmm. Did that make you feel different as a kid? I mean, I know you mentioned being higher up on the the autism spectrum, having you know mm-hmm. Aspergers, but did did that make you feel different as a kid? Being worried about that? Um, I you know, I was thinking about that just the uh, the past twenty four hours for some reason. Um, you know, because there I was thinking about like, is there some sort of analogy of like being feeling different or being different? And the only one I could think of is, you know, people who say that they find out later that they're gay. They're like, oh, I always felt different as a kid. And I was like, I wonder if there's some sort of similarity there, um, because when I was a kid, uh, there were two things I noticed, and a bunch of stuff I didn't notice. Uh, <laughs> the stuff I didn't notice is how differently I acted, and and I didn't make eye contact and stuff. I didn't notice any of that stuff. It was just weird. Um, I, I didn't do it as much, and I don't even think other people noticed as much. They thought I was shy, right? It was oh, it's shy or introverted. Um, but I think for me, there were two. Uh, one was that. Um, I didn't seem to like have the same social like interest or way of behaving as other folks. So I started noticing like I would just sit there kind of observe and think about a lot of stuff. I'd be stuck in my head a lot and and people would like kind of do things I think I thought were weird. Like they do things to be popular or do things to impress others and be like, well, why are you doing any of that stuff? Uh, <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like who cares? Like people care about like the clothes you wear and all that. I'm like, I don't care about any of this. Like I wear clothes because uh, like because you can't walk around naked. That's about all. That's all I do. Uh, it's like, okay, I wear, I wear whatever. Um, and so, like, I, I have the most boring wardrobe ever, and I'm fine with it because it's like I don't care. I don't think about it. I mean, it's not as bad as Steve Jobs. You know, we're just wearing the same colored uh, 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 turtleneck, but um, but yeah, it's it's pretty boring, and I'm okay with that. But the other thing that was uh, interesting was um, that uh, I I thought in terms of I thought more like a computer than a human. Everything I thought of was in terms of algorithms, and this was uh, a case in point when I actually I did look back and find out I did have Aspergers. Uh, everything started to make sense. Uh, my favorite memory uh, of this and kind of a humorous thing is my mom noticed I, uh, one day I couldn't get dressed in the morning. And she thought I was being lazy or procrastinating or doing something, but she realized I wasn't. I don't know how she figured this out. I never asked her how, I'd love to know. Uh, but she said she realized that my problem was I didn't understand the order in which I had to put my clothes on to get dressed. And so I sat there paralyzed and just not making a decision. So what she did is she laid out my clothes on the couch, which she did, and I, and I never remember that, that that happened. So I always thought it was just a nice thing she did for me all the time. I thought it was so cool. Uh, but yeah, she said, here's your shirt, and here's the pants, and here's the underwear, and like, and then taught me, basically, and I, I didn't know what an algorithm was back then, obviously, but like taught me an algorithm. You put this on first. I still follow that algorithm to this day because that's the way I kind of operate. And if I don't have an algorithm, uh, I can't really function. And so uh, that kind of weird kind of an irony like the meaning of life i wrote a book on it when i like don't really have any kind of defined meaning myself i have to give myself a meaning or purpose and then create an algorithm for myself to go do it or else i won't act at all and it's just a really bizarre <laughs> difference from typical humans who just kind of do whatever they feel like doing i don't have those feelings all the time i do but like it's not as prevalent or it doesn't drive my behavior as much as others right well i do want to talk about purpose um because I know that uh, just going back to my own days as a, a psych student, that was that was my major, and I was gonna 
do the whole PhD thing and took a bit of a side, you know, I, I guess a, a big, uh, a big left turn there, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, um, the people I really admired was, you know, Victor Frankl, um, who, mm-hmm. you know, most, most famous for man search for meeting, um, mm-hmm. believing that meaning is, uh, meaning and having purpose in life was really what got him through, you know, Auschwitz. Um, and it just really goes and underscore how important, you know, having a purpose is in life. So, uh, Nate, I have to ask you, uh, since you wrote a book on this, um, what is, how, how do we find purpose in life? Like what is, what is, um, I guess the algorithm, uh, for, for finding our purpose in life. Sure. And that's actually how the book is structured. So I'll take you through there are eight components to it. Um, and I'll list, I'll list them off and then I can explain them. So the eights are, um, growth experience, desire, belief, emotions, ethics, support, and choice. And those all eight are required collectively to a certain degree to feel a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. But if you wanted a short answer, like a one-word answer of what the meaning of life is, then that answer, if I were forced to give a one-word answer, would be growth. And I know that's kind of a counterintuitive one. Most people think it's happiness and things like that. But see, you know, I, I made sure that my book was scientific in nature. I have an entire cha- uh, section of every chapter of the book that talks about what if you didn't have this attribute, what would happen? Because you have, you, you know, in science, you don't prove something. You fail to disprove it by not by, by proving that the opposite is not correct. Right. Uh, and it's like then you can figure out, well, the opposite, the, the null hypothesis is not right. So therefore, this other thing uh, must be likely to be true and we can keep testing it. Um, and so no, everyone says the meaning of life is to be happy. And that's just completely, that's objectively wrong. It's not as, it's not my opinion. It's not subjective. It's objectively wrong. And the reason is there are two reasons. Um, number one is that happiness is an indicator. It's not a goal. Um, so feelings, emotions, which is uh, chapter uh, five, it, we talk about how uh, emotions are an indicator. So if you're happy, it's a it's feedback that's saying you're growing and thriving, right? Uh, whereas if you're afraid, you're afraid of someone hurting you, so harm. So it's growth and harm. All emotions exist on some sort of relationship to growth and harm. So it's a feedback mechanism telling you, hey, you're growing, you're thriving, you're having a great time, you're happy. Uh, but that's not a goal, it's an indicator. Now, you can make an indicator and a goal, and I won't get into that, but you could do that. I um, mean, a lot of people do that, but then they start doing drugs and stuff because they think that the meaning of life is to be happy, and then they start doing drugs. Look how, how happy I am. So it's it really confusing. Uh, we can talk about that later. But to answer your um, uh, uh, question, um, you know, how do you find more meaning and purpose? The other thing I, uh, with the scientific testing, um, can you have meaning and not be happy? And the answer is absolutely yes, because you just mentioned Viktor Frankl. He was, I mean, do you think anyone's happy and living their best lives in a concentration camp? No. But do you think they have meaning and purpose? Yes, you can. Um, and, uh, and people go into war. They're not happy. And <laughs> I wouldn't describe anyone going to war as happy. Um, but are they uh, meaningful? Are they living meaningful lives? Of course, because they're they're serving either growth or protection. You know, yeah. growth or protection. Those are the two opposite sides of the same thing. Yeah. And that's why growth is the center the centerpiece. Yeah, I, I really like this this focus on growth because if I think about you know two big areas of our lives, right, our career. Um, you know, our job, what we do to earn a living and personal relationships. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt if like, I'm not, if I don't feel like I'm growing in my career, I am much less happy. And that's when I start looking around for something to do. Mm-hmm. Now I work for myself. So I have only myself to blame for no growth, but, um, <laughs> but also like in our personal relationships, um, if we feel like there's, they're not growing, no matter how long you've been with somebody, 
Um, mm -hmm. I feel like that's when either the eye starts to wander or we start to maybe second guess, you know, is this the right person for us? If, if there's whatever is happening in the relationship is not leading to some form of growth. Um, I'd, I'd love your take on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, don't, don't uh, and I'm going to do some stereotypes for fun, but like, doesn't, uh, isn't, isn't the male's like general uh, worst question to hear is like, where's this going? What is this going? 100%. So what are we, where are we going? That's, those are growth questions because yeah. uh, women, I and mean, this is biology, man. This is, but this is why, that's why I, the, the biggest part of all the things that you listed out in my intro was the evolutionary psychology part because you can learn a lot about that and the evolutionary psychology of the female brain is to find someone who is the best suited person who could provide resources to raise a child effectively and take care and protect uh and so and, and to make sure that you foster a connection with that person so they stick around and commit that is effectively what the female brain is wired to do and, I, and that's a great thing. I mean, yeah, there's some problems, you know, and, and we can talk about all that, about how like how, how men who aren't uh, the, the best uh, get kind of the short end of the stick on that. And that's that's true. But like if you think about it in terms of like societal trial rearing and all that stuff, great system, great system. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, yeah, that's why women ask, like, where is this going? Uh, uh, that's why I, they always say I don't have boyfriends. I have projects, you know, that joke. Uh, because they always want to push the man to grow more and be more uh, of a provider. That's what we're wired to do. And women are also, you know, typically very nurturing uh, in nature, again, following with the genetic stereotypes, because uh, uh, they need to foster growth in their children, because they need to make sure, nurture them, make sure that they grow into great things. So, like, growth is at the, at the center of all of it, whether it's men for protection or, or providing, that's for protecting someone from harm or providing or, uh, growth, whether it's a, a, a more traditional female role of, of nurturing and fostering the growth in the child, uh, whether it's relationship growth to form the bond, which is what you were talking about, to, to have the commitment necessary, the shared commitment necessary to have that uh you know life that's that's a support support in my seven or my eight items number seven um the support with for each other to actually grow more than you could apart um or you can grow apart you ever heard of growing apart there you go growing apart grows that's at the center of whether you even stay with your significant other or not i mean see it's at the center of everything and i think people know that but no one actually went out and stated at least that i know of until i said hey growth is being life you should probably focus on that um most people um, kind of say like, you know, love or, 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 or happiness or service or some other thing. Uh, but growth is at the heart of all of it. Yeah. And you know, we're, we're meant to grow. I mean, if you think about it, even literally from the time we're born, we're, we're just constantly physically growing. Um, but we also have to pay attention to that emotional growth too. Yeah, that's the thing that's, uh, uh, so there are many forms of growth. A lot of people go, well, Nate, you know, you only grow until your maximum physically in like around, you know, in your 20s, right? Um, and then you start dying, right? It's like, well, okay, that's a cynical view, but uh, you reproduce and then your kids grow and then they reproduce and their kids grow. So like growth is still, you know, fundamental to your existence, uh, even if you get old and you eventually die, um, but you're still growing in other ways. You're growing emotionally, you're growing intellectually growing spiritually or growing socially. So, um, you know, people who just think growth is literal physical growth are missing out on all these other forms of growth as well. Right. Um, so what's up next? What's up after growth? 
Um, experience. Uh, so experience is the medium through which growth occurs. And I don't mean to sound too uh, sterile, but um, if you want to talk uh, objectively about how growth works, you exist in a current state, uh, you want to exist in a future state, a desired future state, and then growth is the transition from the current state to the future state. And the medium through which all growth can occur is experience. So you need to have experience. In fact, I always joke that the best uh, the best example of the meaning of life that can be found in, in an HR uh, hiring process. Uh, I know that's again, it sounds very boring, but it's true. Uh, think about HR hiring processes. What do they make you do? Fill out a resume. What does the right resume have on it? An objective at the top, and then your experience. Ever all your experiences lead you up to being able to attain that objective. I mean, that's literally how life works. Um, and so, uh, and experience is proof that you've grown in a certain way to be able to attain, uh, you know, to do the work they need you to do to attain whatever goal that they're looking for. Um, so it's li like literally HR works in that exact, human resources works in that exact way of understanding your growth trajectory in terms of your skills and capabilities uh, in a profession to be successful. That's literally how it works. So experience is the medium uh, for growth. Okay, so we've got growth experience and up next, uh, I'll cover desire and belief together because they kind of go hand in hand. Um, those are the next two. So uh, desire is the uh, drive uh, that every organism has to grow, right? So like if you your basic drives are what? You know, air, water, food, shelter, sex, et cetera. All the fundamentals for growth, right? So, uh, so you're, those are your core drives, but then you have higher level goals. So then you have desire to, you know, run a marathon or to prove how, you know, fit you are or mentally tough you are. Um, <clears throat> you have goals to, you know, write a best-selling novel or something. So people have these higher level goals, but you have to grow into them. Um, so desire is the driving force. Uh, belief is the sustaining force. So it doesn't matter how much drive you have. If you don't believe it's possible, it's not going to happen. Um, and that's why here's the thing, like most self-help books, they focus on what? Negative beliefs. Why? Because no one's going to write a book saying want less <laughs> or want something different, right? You're wanting the wrong thing. Like, could you imagine how well that book would sell? Uh, wouldn't sell at all. So everyone focuses on like unlimited beliefs because you need belief uh, to uh, keep, to sustain your drive through adversity to achieve your goal. Um, hope, faith, whatever you want to call it. So you need desire and belief uh, to drive yourself to have the experiences necessary for the growth you need to attain your goal. That's how those four work in conjunction together. Yeah. I mean, speaking from somebody who, you know, recently ran a half marathon, um, you, know, you can put yourself in the best physical shape possible, but you know, if at mile 12, you don't believe you can finish or you don't trust in your training, um, it's over, it's over <laughs> yeah. right? It's a mental thing. And I know people who, you know, run marathons and ultra marathons, and they say the same thing, you know, the mind will quit before the body does, yeah. um, which I think is is pretty profound and kind of touches a little bit on, on what you were just saying. Yeah, exactly. Now, the next one we already talked about was emotions. And here's a cool thing. This is this is probably my favorite thing from the book because it's a, such an interesting formula that I, I find it fascinating. And I think it's the most immediately applicable to anyone just immediately coming out of this conversation, for example. Uh, Everyone says I'm in touch with my emotions. That's one of the things I learned because I like I didn't understand emotion, so I had to dissect it like uh, mechanically, right? Like an algorithm, right? And uh, there's a formula for all emotions. If you want to understand why you feel a certain way, there's actually a literal formula, and you could dissect it and figure out why you feel whatever, however you feel. Uh, emotions equal, and it, and no surprise, the three things I just said before: emotions equal desire plus belief plus experience. That's how all 
emotions are, occur. Now we all know from psychology this, and you, since you majored it, you know what I'm talking about, right? The basic fundamental stimulus response. Emotions are emotional response, so you have a stimulus and then you have an emotional response, right? That's the experience part of the formula, right? So if someone punches you in the face, ow, that hurts. You know, you feel bad, right? So, so like that stimulus response. Uh, but being humans with these advanced brains, uh, desire and belief also matter, right? So take jealousy, for example, and you can use a formula for anything, but I'll use jealousy because it's my favorite one because it's kind of fun. So desire, you want a person or thing. Uh, if you didn't want it, you wouldn't be jealous, right? Uh, you have to believe that you deserve that person or thing. And generally speaking, you have to believe that the person who does have that person or thing doesn't deserve it. <laughs> and then um, third, you have to have the experience of seeing that person with that person or thing that you want. And then you feel jealous. Why? So, well, that's my, my person or thing. And that person doesn't deserve it, right? Now, here's what's cool. If you want to change your emotional state at any time, you just have to change one of those three things and your emotions change. So, and we all know, what are the three recommendations people have if you feel jealous? Number one, don't look at it. <laughs> change your experience. You will feel less of that jealousy, right? It'll go away with the ex experience of not seeing that thing. Uh, don't want it anymore. That's what Aesop fables, everyone knows sour grapes, right? The fox is going after the grape and said, oh, it must be sour anyway. Now that technically that's changing a belief, but it was changing a belief to squelch the desire. So now he doesn't want the grape anymore because he thinks it's sour. So he changed the desire. He also changed the belief. But that's the third thing you can do is just change your belief. Um, and that's my favorite one. So like, you know, am I jealous of Elon Musk, for example? It's like, well, no, I'm not jealous of Elon Musk. Why? Because my belief is different about Elon Musk. I believe that Elon Musk, you know, worked hard. He started these great businesses and he deserves the money he has. And because of that, and I would like to do something like that too, that has similar impact or whatever. So I don't, I'm not jealous of Elon Musk. I admire Elon Musk. And what's the difference? The difference is the belief. If I didn't believe he had it and I was trashing him all the time, then yeah, that would come off as jealousy because I, my belief would be different. So emotions are my favorite one to talk about because it's so fun to talk about how you can actually mathematically calculate a formula for uh, or create a formula for uh, how your emotions work. Um, but it, it tells you your relationship between desire, belief, and experience. Um, and ultimately, therefore, your relationship toward growth, like fear, you're afraid of being harmed, happy, you're fulfilled, you're, you know, fulfilling your growth enabled purpose. Right. So I know we're getting closer to discovering the meaning of life, uh, yeah. but we still have a few more to go. So what, what's up yeah. after emotions? Um, ethics. Um, so uh, every organism has to follow rules to optimize their growth. And in a society, uh, in a social organism, uh, you have to follow rules that take into consideration not only your own growth, but also others. Uh, growth and harm, by the way, growth and harm. Um, and so uh, ethics are rules you follow to optimize or maximize your own growth while minimizing harm to everyone else. Um, and you have to follow that because if you want uh, number seven, which is support, because <laughs> if you want someone to help you, <laughs> you can't hurt them first. Um, so these two work together as well. So ethics and support are what you might call collectively cooperation. You wonder why I didn't call it support, why, why I didn't call it cooperation. There are two reasons. First of all, it's because it requires both ethics and support for cooperation to be a thing. So you need fair rules, which is what ethics are about. And then you need to actually not just not hurt people, but then help them, which is the support. But also support, you can get support from things that are not human or non animal or non-living you can have, have support from you can have a favorite book you like to read or something so like you can or maybe a favorite food you like to eat or whatever so like you can you can get support from things that are not uh, people 
but those two things are necessary um, for you to uh, maximize or, or optimize your growth because um, you know, there's that old, there's an old, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a fable or whatever, parable or whatever, where they take, you know, you know, here's one stick, break the stick and break the stick. And like, here's five sticks, try to break the stick. And you're like, and you're like, oh, I can't break it because those multiple things create exponentially greater strength than one thing. And, you know, you couldn't build the pyramids by yourself. You couldn't have built Stonehenge by yourself um, without taking millennia. You can't build a self-driving car by yourself without having the millennia of people learning physics and metallurgy and all this other crap that you need to learn to build this stuff. Um, you literally need millions of people to build a car, uh, a self-driving car. So, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's just, uh, if you want to maximize your growth, you need other people and you need ethics and support to do so. We all know though, that aliens built Stonehenge and the pyramids. Come on. <laughs> um, all right. So where do we round up? Where, where what's, uh, what's, uh, uh, I think we're down to, uh, Number choice. eight, right? Yeah. Yeah, choice. So uh, choice is the big finale. Um, not only is it great because, you know, if you're know, just kind of inside baseball, you know, if you write a book that's trying to help people, um, you want to end on some sort of action oriented uh, thing so that people actually leave your book and do something. Um, and so uh, I, I ended with choice, not only for that reason, although it, it, it does, um, it just makes logical sense to end with it anyway. But um, the idea of choice is, is, is important. There are two main uh, takeaways from it. Um, first is that uh, choice is arguably the ultimate ability because you control your destiny through the choices you make. It's the only, I mean, you know, there's the old uh, uh, serenity prayer, right? You know, grant me the wisdom to, you know, uh, stuff I can control the things I can to ignore the things I can't kind of thing and wisdom to know the difference. Uh, and so the, the, the first point is to control what you can control as much as you can if you want to realize the life that you want. So if you want to grow, like, you know, if, if, if you want to go be a stand-up comedian, then you got to choose to go and learn stand-up comedy or go get on stage for the first time and risk everyone booing you. I mean, man, every successful stand-up comedian I've ever heard says the first time when they went up, they got booed off the stage. I mean, you have to be ready to ready for that. You have to make the choice to like go and take that barrage of crap and then say, oh, I'm going to go go up again until you get good. I mean, that's yeah. brutal. I, that's why comedians are so such good actors and so good at everything. I feel like if you can survive comedy, you can do anything. <laughs> but, it's the um, truth. but yeah, it's the truth. So, so like the choices you make determine your destiny and that's what that's about. And so you got to make the choices every day to do the things you want to do, to grow in the way that you want to grow, to realize the life of your dreams. But there's a second component to it because I know there are a lot of folks out there. I don't know. There's some weird group of scientists that, that, that believe because they found some evidence that your brain unconsciously makes a decision 11 seconds before you consciously realize it, that therefore everything is deterministic. And I'll put, I'll only pick on one person cause he's famous for it. Like Sam Harris is like, Oh, you know, everything's deterministic and we have no free will. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, I can hang up this thing right now and go do something. I'm not going to, but like I could, I have that choice. I'm choosing not to every second I'm talking to you. I'm choosing not to go do something else. And that's my choice. That is my choice. Yes, of course, you have biology. Like I can't because I'm bi biologically able to speak. I'm able to have this conversation. If I didn't speak the same language as you probably wouldn't be a good conversation. I accept all of those things. But just because things are necessary to come before uh, something else doesn't mean that it causes the thing. That's the whole like correlation as an equal causation. Um, and so, so just because something came before it does, and, and it's, and, and just because something is required for it doesn't mean that, that it dictates it's, ha it's happening. Um, and so, yes, we have free will. Uh, it, are you influenced by your biology? Absolutely. Are you influenced by external factors? Absolutely. Uh, but whatever you have 
the decision to do, um, you have the decision to do. Um, and we know that the people who choose to work out one more time than their competitor, and then they beat them in this in the sporting event. And it was all because it wasn't because one person was necessarily, you know, biologically better it might be the case in some, you know, basketball players are taller, obviously. But like, um, you know, at the end of the day, there are plenty of superstars who aren't as tall or aren't as fast or aren't as big. Or, and they win. Why? Because they put in the extra effort and why? Yes, of course, they maybe have some sort of biological advantage of discipline. But given that fact, they still have to choose to do it because you can also sit around and eat potato chips all day. You have that choice and you make a choice. So uh, it's kind of getting people out of that like um, fatalistic uh, attitude and mindset to get people to go like you have to make the choice to grow. You have to make the choice to you can foster the desire you have through choice. You can develop better beliefs through choice. Every single thing is influenced by choice uh, and you should take advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, also ending on something like that, it's you've taught everybody like what they need to know, but then they've got to do something right. They actually have to take some kind of action. Um, Well, one of the things I like to do on the show is get to know my guests um, a little bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to make a right turn here and I'm going to ask you some questions um, just to get to know you better, Nate. So uh, Nate, first off, uh, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite uh, TV shows? What'd you like to watch on TV when you were a kid? Oh, uh, Seinfeld. Although ironically, um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't like Seinfeld because it was popular, but I didn't know anything about it. I just like, oh, everyone thinks it's popular. So I was just trying to be like, you know, a hipster or something. I don't know. Um, but then I ended up watching and it was, became my favorite show. Cause someone, my, my, my dad said, I laughed like, uh, Jerry Seinfeld when I would, well, I would get anxious or I would laugh. I would get the high pitched, like, uh, you know, um, uh, I don't want to be a pirate kind of thing. And I sound, they're like, you sound just like Jerry Seinfeld. I'm like, okay, well, I'd never seen the show. And then I watched it. It became my favorite show. Yeah. Um, favorite, do you have a yeah. favorite episode that comes to mind? Oh, well, uh, everyone loves the uh, closing of the, um, uh, oh God, I forget the, uh, 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 the marine biologist. Everyone loves the ending. That I, that's the best one. Where it's like the sea is angry, my friends. The sea was rough. That <laughs> old man, <laughs> an old man referring soup in the deli. <laughs> it's like uh, that, everyone loves that uh, uh, that that monologue. Um, that, so that's one of my favorites. I mean, but I I do like the. Um, uh, I do like a lot of the uh, the ones that people are known for. Ironically, though, I don't like the one that the show is famous for. I don't like the Chinese restaurant at all. It's no, like it's not one of the better ones. I agree with you on no. that. I mean, I it's a bottle episode. It's like, eh. yeah, it does represent what the show is all about, which is just finding the stupid nuances in, in life that uh, that annoy people and and kind of find it, t- making fun of it. Um, so I totally I appreciate it, but I don't I definitely don't yeah. uh, don't like it. Yeah. I feel like I've done my job well as a father because my three kids we have triplets are twenty years old. Um, mm-hmm. Two out of the three anyway love to watch Seinfeld. So um, I feel like I've done my job well there. Um, well, in addition to TV, what about music? What were you listening to when you were a kid? Uh, you know, I was kind of uh, eclectic, but I, I mean, I was kind of biased toward hits, uh, but, um, it was, I listened to a variety of things because I, I started working when I was 15, um, you know, single mother. So you got to work and <laughs> provide food for your family. So I started doing that early, breaking some uh, child labor laws there. Um, thank you to the people who let me do that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, so, um, uh, I, I listen at work. We listen to like hard rock alternative. Um, and then um, at, at night, uh, I'd listen to a lot of hip hop and, and rap and things. I loved the uh, early 90s rap for some reason. It just really uh, spoke to me. It's like I love the beats and the bass and everything. Yeah. I thought that was cool. Like the modern stuff I don't, I can't get into because it doesn't have that same. There's something about the rhythm and the beat. And back then that they kind of 
they kind of pared it down now and it's kind of a little i don't know kind of two-steppy kind of now these days um but um but yeah so um it was that uh but then i, I loved uh top 40s for the for the previous 50 years because because my in the car we'd always listen to oldies because that's what my my mom listened to you know 50s and 60s kind of stuff um and then my my dad had a bunch of 70s uh uh eight tracks and cassette tapes and things so i listened to 70s so like i ended up getting like basically top 40 hits from the for like a 40 year period uh and then the genres it didn't matter as long as it, it sounded good the only thing i didn't really get exposed to too much was country because it just wasn't you know anything i got exposed to so i don't really care for too much um although i will tell you a weird one um so i played uh, uh, uh played classical i was in orchestra so i really like classical music but i don't go out of my way to listen to it but when i hear it I go oh yeah that's a nice piece <laughs> so I, I really like it but i don't actually proactively uh listen to it and then my um my uncle was a, a an accordion player and we're um uh rural rural uh, pittsburgh uh, outside of Pittsburgh, uh, so uh, a lot of um, it's Nova Cells Croatian, so a lot of polka and stuff. So um, I, I don't proactively listen to that either, but um, I grew up around a lot of that, uh, so I heard that. So Weird Al Yankovic was kind of cool. It's like, oh my God, one person hit it big with an accordion. That's with crazy. Accordion, yeah, and then like Judy Tenuta, you know, going back to comedians who I think just passed away. Um, but just kind of bringing back to your daddy, because I know you just mentioned sure. him and his musical taste. Did you wind up having a relationship with him later in life? Um, so I did between um, time I was six and my junior year of high school, because I didn't go out to California. I, I go out. It was started at three weeks, two days that it was every summer. Went up to 10 weeks was the most I'd ever gone out there for, which was like right after I grad or, uh, left uh, school and right before I came back. Um, but, um, but yeah, uh, I didn't go senior year cause I was playing football and I wanted to do the summer, uh, what they call it, professional OTAs. I don't remember what we called it <laughs> in high school. Uh, and, um, um, but yeah, then, um, I went, sorry, I went back out for a few years in college, uh, but it kind of uh, faded out. Um, there was kind of like a, um, a, a conflict or whatever, where, uh, people just got real and honest about stuff. And I just said, uh, you know, you're because he he really is like uh, I, I've never been diagnosed, but I mean, pretty much a narcissist. Like, I mean, he only thinks about himself. So he only cares about himself. I mean, literally, he does some weird stuff that no one in, in the right, the right mind would do. Like he was sitting in a car uh, waiting for uh, uh, my stepmother to like go get uh, uh, groceries and he just didn't feel like sitting anymore. So he got an Uber and just went home himself without telling anybody. <laughs> I mean, like, really, like, 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 really. Like, like, real, and then, and then, and then, and then my stepmother got mad. I mean, obviously, like, just disappeared. I tell anything. He's like, why? Why are you upset? I just felt like going home. I didn't do anything to you. And it's like he had like no concept of other human beings. Yeah. Um. So it's just that's just the kind of person he is. Uh, he's just an inherently intrinsically selfish person. So I said that to his face. Um. And he didn't take it very well. I uh, demanded I apologize. Uh, I'm not. A, I didn't insult you. I just told you the truth. Like you are. So I just said you are self. I didn't call him. You know, I, I won't say any words on here. But like I didn't call him any bad words that you expect someone to call for yeah. someone who is a selfish person. I just said you're selfish, and I don't really like that. And I think I don't. I don't know if you're a really good person. And he he demanded I apologize. I'm like no. <laughs> like no. I just told you the truth. And then he said to me, he said, well, that's your fault. You're too sensitive. And I mean, come on. Like that's that right. one story alone. That one story alone absolves me of any responsibility for like what, right. what i said to it <laughs> like really like there are a million other ones uh yeah. and so yeah after that i didn't really haven't really talked to him so yeah it's like gaslighting 101 there 
yeah. Yeah, he said it was my fault that I'm too sensitive that I that I can't take a joke or whatever. I don't know. It's like and he and he said even if it were my fault, I'm too old and all that could have changed and so you have to deal with it. I'm like, "No, I don't." And so <laughs> right. I made my choice. Speaking of the right. book, I made my choice. I, I don't want to hang out with this person cuz don't really like them. So. Well, speaking about the book, what did what did you learn, if anything, about yourself during the writing process? Any big insights into yourself? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there were a couple uh, that were uh, really big that I really enjoyed. Um, uh, the ethics chapter was the most brutal. And I, I, if anyone does want to get the book, I will warn you. The, eight, the ethics chapter is 80 pages long. Uh, I tried to cut it down. It, it feels very comprehensive. I wanted to cover it. Um, and I, hey, I self-publish. I can do whatever I want. If you don't like the book, that's okay. I'm okay with that. But uh, but yeah, so um, I learned, man, that was brutal. Because if you, you know how kind of like priming, like psychology priming, like you, you think about something and then it shows up everywhere. Um, because you're thinking about it, uh, man, everything was ethical dilemmas came out of the woodwork. Everything was an ethical dilemma. I was like, Oh God, please. I can't wait till I finish this chapter so I can stop thinking about this crap. Um, that really kind of blew my mind about like, how do you write a chapter about ethics without taking a position on what ethics people should have? So my favorite thing in there was that there are three near universal ethics that everyone holds that are biological. Um, there's fairness, reciprocity, and minimal harm to people you care about. Um, though you have to hold those three ethics because uh, we're social creatures. So you have to have fairness, because if you don't treat people consistently, then so you're going to have favoritism and bias, and then the, the people are going to leave, and you're not going to have those people's friends, right? Reciprocity, if someone does something nice for you, you have to do something nice for them. If you promise not to hurt them, you have, you have to promise not to hurt them. So like, you have to have that. And then the minimal harm, obviously, if someone hurts you, you're not going to stick around, So or you're going to hurt them back. Reciprocity. So like, you have to have that. So I, I kind of was able to explain to people some core ethics without saying, hey, look, I'm not telling you this is right or wrong, or you should do this. I'm just saying this is the way it works. Um, the other one, this is my personal favorite because it's my personal journey, the belief chapter. So if I were to conclude what the belief, how do, what do you, what should you believe <laughs> after all that work? And I said, okay, here's it. You have to believe in what's real enough so you don't get hurt, but you have to believe in what's possible enough so you keep pushing forward to realize your potential where the line is like you know I, I use the extreme examples like you can't jump off a cliff and start flapping your arms and flying no matter how much you believe you will fall and die and that's it um on the other hand uh we did invent the airplane because we did want to fly and now we're able to so if we firmly lived in reality the airplane would have never been invented because we're like oh i live in reality and there's no such thing as an airplane so therefore i'm not going to bother my time with it um but if we firmly lived in pie in the sky you'd fall off a cliff and die um so what's the right beliefs to hold i don't know but i will tell you my biggest revelation within that within that spectrum is that there's a word there's a word that means the belief in the potential for a positive outcome without or despite evidence and what's that word that word is faith and if you want to live life through adversity, you actually need to have the belief in a potential for a positive outcome without or despite evidence, which is faith. So in order to succeed or realize your full potential in life, you need faith. I'm not saying faith in God. I'm not saying faith in spiritual or religious, but you need to have faith. You need to believe in potential positive outcome without evidence. And so you need to have faith. And I was like, that was a, that was a holy crap moment for me because I was like, well, I don't even know what faith, like, I don't really understand faith. I mean, I, I was raised Catholic. I was doing a thing. So like, oh, God said so. I'm like, okay. But I kind of quickly got out of it. Cause I just, I just didn't have the mental capacity for, for like, okay. So does it, how does this affect me? It doesn't affect me. Then why am I doing this? Like, I don't understand this. Um, and the, I never understood the faith because I was just like, 
believing something that you can't prove because for what purpose, to what end? And that's to what end? A positive outcome. People hold faith because of the desire for a positive outcome. And there is value in having the belief in a potential positive outcome, even if there's no evidence, because it does get you to change your behavior. You do end up with people who have faith. And I don't, again, I don't mean religious faith. People who believe in themselves, self-confidence, faith in other people, faith in society, faith in whatever, uh, are more successful in life because they believe, because they push themselves further than beyond what anyone who was doubtful would think was possible. And I, that, you know, blew my mind. I was like, oh crap, how do I go find, I gotta go learn how to have faith because that's crazy. You do need it, so. And then lastly, if you could um, get into a DeLorean, go back in time, give yourself uh, some, your younger self, some words of advice. You know, maybe it's that six-year-old who's questioning the meaning of life. Um, what, what words of advice would you choose to share with your younger self? Um, probably two pieces of advice. One is life is actually pretty easy. I know that's hard to say. Uh, and people are, what do you mean by that? Um, when you think about it mechanically, I don't mean like, oh, you've got uh, burdens and responsibilities, all this stuff. But when you break it down to just the fundamentals of life, life is actually pretty easy. Uh, eat, drink, sleep, <laughs> do something that earns money and then pay for the things that give you shelter and the food and everything else. And that's all you got to do. It's <laughs> like the bear, but you don't have to do anything else. You can spend the rest of the time just sitting there staring at a wall and you can live your life. That is how basic. And that's kind of how I looked at life uh, eventually when I was like, hey, you know, because I was all stressed. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. It's like, wait a second. I don't have to do any of this stuff. I choose to do all this stuff. And that's such a cool, that's one of the teachings in the choice chapter is when you reframe everything you're doing, not as I have to do it, but as I choose to do it, you empower yourself uh, to feel feel like you can really have a, an impact and really shape your own destiny instead of feeling like a victim. Um, and um, yeah, when I, um, I'd probably go back and say, hey, life is, is you know, don't stress out. This is kind of easy. You'll get through it. No problem. Uh, it's not as bad as you think. And then the second thing I would, I would tell myself is that like um, what people complain about, like it's not as big of a deal as people like make it out to be like, you know, that's the whole Buddhist thing about like, nothing's ever as bad as you think it is. Nothing's ever as good as you think it is kind of thing. I don't, I don't want to turn anyone into stoic stoics or anything, but like, like there's something like real to that. I, it's just a saying, but like in reality, um, the way I felt it is that I grew up in the U S standards poor. Cause I was a single mother, you know, did not, not very much money. So I always wanted to have money. Cause I always saw how stressed my mom was. She worked at a job she hated and all that other stuff. And I couldn't afford anything. So I wore clothes. Everyone made fun of me. And I'm like, I don't, I didn't care about that stuff, but like, um, you know, I was like, whatever clothes just fit, fit me. And that's it. Um, and so, um, like the money thing, like I was always like, well, I gotta go earn money. Cause it's like, I, I don't never want to be poor. Cause I want to have money and do all this stuff. And then I got all of that stuff. So I have, you know, a very successful career and all this other stuff. And uh, it's just kind of like, okay, so I, I did that. So like, what's next? Just like kind of what everyone else would do. Well, that's why growth is the meaning of life and no one single goal. Because as soon as you attain whatever goal you want, the next question you're going to have is, okay, what's next, right? That's literally what you're going to ask. That's why growth is the point and not any specific goal. Uh, but for me, like I... I thought like, I, I don't know, part of me probably really thought that there's some sort of happily ever after you get that thing and everything's going to be great. Um, that's stupid and naive. I totally admit that, but that's what I thought for a long time. And I feel like maybe if I would have really truly understood 
like what I know now about that kind of that set of things uh, that really matter, I probably would be in a little bit better of a spot now, maybe a little bit better. Cause like right now I'm still kind of like, Oh, what do I do now? What do I do now? It's like, I, I did everything I had pictured in my mind from when I was a kid, like graduate from school and get a good job and make a lot of money and get it, had the wife and all this other stuff, have big house and all this other stuff. And it turned out a lot of that stuff wasn't actually right for me. Uh, and <laughs> so now I was like, Oh crap, now what do I do? And now I'm kind of back to square one and some of those things. Um, that's what life is, is a continuous journey of change and growth. And so you got to figure out what's next. And I wish I would, probably would have known that. I probably would have spent many more, more years thinking of additional things and additional things, additional things. I'd probably um, have a lot more clearer of a picture of like the kind of how everything fits together. Because now kind of once I achieved everything I thought I wanted and now I'm still here and still hanging around, it's like, well, now what do I do? Um, it's kind of, I, I feel like I need to go read my own book now. <laughs> so. I was going to say, maybe if you didn't do all that thinking, you wouldn't yeah. have enough content for a book. Uh, and by the way, the book we were talking about is The Meaning of Life, A Guide to Finding Your Life's Purpose. The author is Nathaniel Garrett Novacell. Uh, Nate, where can people buy the book? Uh, yeah, it's on wherever books are sold online. So Amazon and Barnes and Noble and stuff, uh, uh, Apple books and things. Uh, you can get that. Um, the hard copy uh, is on uh, mainly on uh, Amazon. The, the, the hardbacks on, I think, only on Amazon. It might be at the other places, too. But um, you can go and get that there. Um, there's another book, uh, The X Factor, The Spiritual Secrets of Successful Executives and Entrepreneurs. I'm, I wrote uh, one chapter in that. It's a multi-author book, people giving their experiences of being effective leaders uh, and how spirituality affected that. And if you didn't notice for me, I kind of focused more about like passion and belief in those sorts of things. And then kind of said, well, it's the same principles you'd follow if you were spiritual, but it's, it's like, yeah, I don't really, I thought that's not my thing, but like, it's the same thing. So why not? Who cares? Um, but, uh, but that's the other book I have on there. Okay. And then uh, if people want to connect with you, any social media handles you want to throw out there? Uh, yourmeaninginlife.com is the name of the site. I got a blog there, has the book, has both books, um, and, uh, has a lot of lists of the podcast, which this, this one will be uh, added to that, a link to that, um, as, as soon as it goes up. And, um, yeah, there's just a lot of additional, um, information there. If you have any questions or whatever, um, you can always reach out, reach out to me on the, it's usually at life. The book I think is my typical handle. All right. Very good. Well, uh, Nate, thank you for uh, dropping by and corking a story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.